Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Paisley Smith. Paisley is a virtual reality creator and filmmaker. She's a civic media fellow at the University of Southern California and currently leads Unity for Humanity, a project that funds impact-oriented creations that leverage the Unity game engine. As we move forward immersed in this modern attention economy, it becomes increasingly important for us to leverage the latest immersive technologies for our activism and impact. Towards this end, we'll be talking with her about the variety of ways one can create positive change through game technology, as well as how we can challenge our cultural assumptions while crafting these worlds, and the simple, timeless power of the animated GIF. Along the way, we'll dive into her world-building work with Feminist Futures and her VR art projects, Unceded Territories and Homestead. We'll also get to hear about what it's like to be on both sides of the table when it comes to art funding. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Paisley Smith. Today, I'm here with Paisley Smith. Welcome, Paisley. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so today we're going to cover a few different topics. We're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, sort of the, the concept of using uh, games and game technology and different interactive technologies uh, for good, for impact. Uh, it'll be fun for us to hear a little bit of the ways that you've sort of done that personally. And then also uh, we'll talk a little bit about your work with Unity um, and hopefully get into some topics about world building. So um, if you have an interest in kicking us off, I'd love to just to kind of hear how you got involved in sort of AR, VR games and uh, maybe there's a, if there's a couple stories there. Sure. So I actually um, went to film school for my master's at USC. Mm, uh, yeah. I, I, I like came at this from film completely. Like I pursued film in undergrad and started making movies when I was in high school. Nice. Um, yeah. So that's also great because of... uh, both me and producer Nick are both from USC as well. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Right on. Um, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Um, they say it's the USC mafia there. <laughs> They're not lying. The USC what? <laughs> mafia. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, well, so I, I, I'm from Vancouver. I honestly didn't think I was going to get into USC. It, it seemed like a huge long shot for me, but I, I'd heard that, you know, it t- can take a couple of times to get into the film school if you apply mm-hmm. repeatedly. So that's kind of what I did and ended up getting accepted and moved down to Los Angeles really, really quickly. It all happened really fast. And um, it was kind of like, I, I don't know if you to study film, but um, it was a very magical, also really intense experience. But one of the things that happened that sort of changed my trajectory from just traditional film to immersive was that um, in my first semester at USC, they offered an experimental class. Um, And because it was an experimental class, it was also free. And if you both went to USC, you know that that's like a huge deal. (laughs) Especially as a Canadian, I was like, hell yes, free class. And also it's so, it was the coolest class ever. It was pitched as a world building class. And so in order to get into this experimental free class, you had to pitch your favorite uh, story world and describe why you loved it and and the just elements of this world. And um, they selected a couple of people to get into the class. And uh, I ended up getting into that class. And at the time it was taught by Peggy Weil and Pablo Frasconi, who are two professors at USC. Pablo focuses more on like experimental and documentary type film. And Peggy is a 
computer uh, game designer who did like a lot of like early Macintosh computer games for kids. And she also does like a lot of VR and immersive art uh, that exhibits all over the place these days. So um, really cool professors. um, And they sort of introduced our class to this concept of world building. And so actually my like work in VR and AR is directly connected to my work on world building. And uh, this is kind of a long story, but it, it, it sets the tone for like how it all happened because if I hadn't taken that random class, like I don't know that I would have gone this path. Um, yeah, yeah. So can you help uh, define that term for our listeners, uh, world building? So for me, uh, world building is starting with an element of the world. I like to think of world building as sort of personal first. So looking at a character hmm. or if you're in that world, what do you carry with you? What are the things that you access the elements of the world beyond? Um, Margaret Atwood has this like incredible quote about how everything in a story world can be defined at breakfast. And I love to think huh. about that a lot when I'm thinking about world building. So what are you eating at breakfast? Where are you sitting? <laughs> What's outside the window? I mean, it's true. You can kind of like start to figure out this whole story world. And so world building um, is, there's many different kinds of world building, but one way to think about it is um, it can be used across any medium. So your story should be like so clearly defined and you really understand it that you can move across any platform. So it really speaks to things mm. like as a filmmaker, okay, I actually don't need to keep to just film. Like I can create a story that can live across games. It could live across graphic novel. It could mm-hmm. be a video game. The idea is that it's a very well-defined world and you can understand and see the details. Um, and it can also, one of the things that, um, we use it for is for designing solutions for the present and for the future as well. So not just um, for story purposes, but also for finding real world solutions to things you want to solve for. Um, so taking it beyond story to actually social impact. Makes sense. And so what, uh, what inspired that kind of shift to, uh, to VR from film? So I had taken this world building class at USC yep. um, and I ended up, creating a personal narrative in that story that I decided I didn't want to do like a cyberpunk world or like a post-apocalyptic world. I mean, a lot of people are drawn to world building for fantasy or sci-fi and I think that's it can be really rad, but I wanted to see, could I use these same techniques for a personal narrative? And so I ended up starting Mm. the beginning of a project that I ended up directing in VR called Homestay. But initially I was thinking of it as like potentially a graphic novel or actually just a straight video game Um, and then I kind of put it on hold because a lot of things in my personal life kind of went insane. Um, (laughs) and so I put on the back burner. Yeah, it was, it was a really tough time, but it ends up being the basis of homestay, uh, the project that I ended up working Mm -hmm. on, um, put that on the back burner. And then what ended up happening is I ended up, it was an experimental class, but then I ended up coming back as the teaching assistant. And when that happened, um, Alex McDowell, who's the founder of the World Building Institute and runs the World Building Lab at USC, um, he's like a huge pioneer of world building in the industry. He's a production designer who's done like Minority Report and Fight Club and all these like major blockbuster hits. Um, He ended up coming on as the official professor and it became a real program and they made a whole track at USC in the film school for it. And so it went from like this experimental space to being super legit and nice. when i was taing it c- becomes very clear what happened because 
uh, a woman named Nani de la Pena, who you might have heard of before. She's known as the godmother of VR. Um, she was actually a student in the class I was teaching, and she offered. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. She offered me a job, and at the time I was like I mentioned, I'm Canadian. I was living in LA. I was like, I need a job. I couldn't get any of the internships I applied for. Um, and she was like, come work for me. And I was like, I have literally no idea what you do, but hell yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's really when world building and VR and, um, all these things started to come together. So it was kind nice. of like just saying yes to opportunity and being like open-minded. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but to give you some context, that was like 2013. Yeah. I was going to uh, say, this was very early. This was like pre-Oculus, right? Yeah. Well, it was actually the summer that Oculus had just been sold to Facebook. And so it went from being like, just like a couple of weirdos in a lab, like experimenting, like crazy, like, I don't know, we would like Nani had made her own headsets in her brother's garage in Venice Beach. And like, there was a guy who like dealt lenses that we would get (laughs) and like, like, um, basically like create yeah it was really 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 cool to witness but all of a sudden it went from like totally just experimental folks to being people like will smith came to our lab like stuff like that like it went from being like random to totally a-list interest um and we and we did like a ton of like crazy travel and we can talk about that if you want but otherwise it just yeah it just went for me as like a in like went from like just saying yes to a random job to like my world changed basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pun intended, right? Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's so interesting, right? Because in VR you have this, um, in some ways it is the sort of dream of world building, right? You can yeah. sort of uh, control every pixel, every voxel that's sort of around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you sort of have control over the sensory experience of the audience and in, in sort of like a, a way that you haven't been able to do in books and movies and, and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels sometimes like a blessing and a curse, right? It's like both you have that ability and then you also like, uh, you know, it brings it challenges in storytelling, right? Like you can't really direct the vision of the viewer as easily, right? You can't, um, you know, you don't have some of the constraints that are promised to you uh, when you're just delivering something through film. Uh, and I'm kind of curious how, like, is there a particular sort of, uh, lessons or things that you found in sort of world building specifically through VR um, as opposed to some of these other mediums? Really interesting question. And also something that like, I actually, um, I've gone through such a journey with it. Uh, obviously mm-hmm. I'm a, I, I, I learned film first. So that's kind of like my first language of storytelling is film. And so that comes the most naturally to me. And sometimes when creating a VR experience, it can be a little bit daunting because there's so many different kinds of things you have to control and understand Mm -hmm. um, that are very, very very different than film. And so one of the things that's been really helpful for me is like grounding myself and knowing that I understand the story I'm telling and I know what I'm doing and trusting that. And that can be really, Mm -hmm. really hard when you're working in a new medium like VR or AR, Um, especially most of the time, you're working with a team that um, isn't necessarily fluent in the same language as you. So you have to find like common language uh, and how to explain things to a large team. I mean, you do that in film as well uh, as, as in also as you would do in in immersive, but finding those shared languages and how to communicate is definitely the first step. But one thing like that I also realized was that there's certain things that I know I love and things that I 
really enjoy about the creative process that can be shared across all mediums that I enjoy. So like film and VR, one of those things is um, like the, the vision process, like imagining the world and coming up with the details of the world. Like that is such a freeing and fun process to really get your creative juices flowing and like get your hands on creativity and like building your mind. Like for me, I do like a lot of mind mapping and like mood boards and like pulling images and references and getting really creative in that sense. So that part really, that sort of like dreamscape stuff really propels my creative process forward. And then on the other side, like audio is a huge portion of VR and it's a place where you can act totally underappreciated, but also like where a lot of the magic of VR in my opinion comes through. So like if you have like incredible audio soundscape or when you touch something in VR, it sparks a sound, like those little things are what are another area of adding pure creative delight to the creative process of VR uh, yeah. that I have found. I believe, I believe Disney did a study where they they showed that people thought that the computer graphics were better when they had sound effects versus when they didn't. <laughs> they actually thought the visuals were A thousand percent. Like, yep. that feels right to me. Like, without adding in the magic of... So, okay, one of the things with film is that you're off, especially in documentary, I come from a documentary background. So a lot of what you're doing is like capturing these like unexpected moments where something unfolds on screen or someone says mm-hmm. something so profound and you're like, oh my God, I just got the best piece of footage. I can't believe that happened. And then you pull it together with this other thing that you captured and like just magically unfolds on screen and you're like, wow, this really works. And that really for documentary filmmakers Like that's the creative energy that you need to ride on to like get you through the rest of the editing process. Right. But in, Mm -hmm. in VR and in, in, in immersive, especially like if you're building on unity, for example, you have to have a lot of your stuff figured out in advance because you're, you, it, it, it's a different process, first of all, but a lot of it is storyboarded or like you've kind of like figured out the details of what your character is going to do and your, um, your interaction, what your interaction is going to be, because a lot of the time it costs so much money to produce these things. And if you're hiring sure. a team, it, it can, you, you really need to be clear on what you're getting uh, across. And so, yeah. and so I found that to be interesting, right? Because like, I've yeah. seen, like if I compare world building and like VR to like one of my other favorite places where they do world building is if you played any of these like interactive fiction games, these like text adventure games, like twine, uh, twine, I think is, uh, yeah, that's a, that's an engine for running this on mobile, right? I think. Yeah, like Twine is like it's yeah. like a text-based, like literary game platform where yeah. you can kind of like do your own. Exactly, like games. those, and then there's also been uh, it's called Choice of Games that I've seen on mobile. But the the thing that I found interesting in there is that uh, it really points at that contrast of how expensive are your assets to make for the game mm-hmm. uh, and how much that informs how much uh, like uh, like meaningful choice in like changing the storyline and stuff that you have, right? It's like very hard to change a, have, ha, like be able to choose like a completely different path in the story when it costs, you know, millions of dollars to make the assets for that, for right. that storyline. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little, yeah. with that in mind, like the cost of it, it's just a little less forgiving. So you need the ways that you can kind of like, add in those layers, that textural spontaneity and unexpected magic of filmmaking for me in the VR process is through audio and like really building out that audio experience. So like adding in um, textural um, music or voiceover or, um, you know, even like like the sound of uh, wind rushing through reeds or something like that. Like you get creative in that way and then it infuses some of that 
landscape and textural magic into the experience. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to touch on kind of as we're entering that, um, and if you want to sort of describe one of one of your projects as you do this as an example, feel free. Um, but we, we've talked a little bit about that idea of like how much do you kind of use real spaces versus how do you sort of like generate things entirely sort of synthetically or or sort of, uh, you know, cartoonish or whatever. How, how do you sort of, how, how have you been thinking about that? And, you know, how did that apply maybe to, um, I think one of your earlier projects was um, the homestay, right? Yeah. So, uh, I started in virtual reality working with Nani, and Nani does journalism and VR. So her company, Emblematic Group, is known for their really moving journalistic VR experiences. Mm-hmm. And with journalism, like the goal is to be as realistic as possible. Like you're recreating sure. something that really happened in a real place with real people that affected people, and you're sharing their story so that people have a better understanding of what occurred. And so sticking to a real location is where her projects are mostly rooted. And so I think because I learned in that way how to create um, VR, it really showed me a clear way of like how to start Apple Story by basing it in a specific location. And actually, when I first started Homestay, that was like not what I was doing at all. I was trying to set it in a video game, like a fantasy world, and then based basically um, you would go through... a TV screen or uh, yeah, like a TV screen and go into the game world from like a documentary setting into a fantasy game. Yeah. And so I was pretty set on that uh, and really thought that was going to be like how the person who experiences the project would move through this game world. Um, They would move through the game world and get pieces of documentary audio as they move through this world. And if they interacted with certain things, it would give them like cues into what occurred in the real world. Um, it, it didn't end up working like that for a number of reasons, but one thing that ended up happening for me beyond like what, sorry, let me just explain this in a more simple way. Basically it was too complicated for me as a new VR director to set it in this fictional location. Uh, in some ways, like it was so many unknowns with the story and so many question marks with the doc, cause it was a documentary story that was extremely complicated And my virtual Mm -hmm. world was also extremely complicated and it wasn't serving the story. So because it was was like, it was so much fantasy and so many unknowns in this world that I was creating that like, I needed something to ground me to reality and help me like feel like I knew exactly where I was going to go as a director. And so what ended up happening is I ended up setting it in the Natobi Memorial Gardens, which is a real garden, real Japanese garden in Vancouver. And it ended up being what set my story free. So even though Hmm. it feels like kind of opposite, like, oh, you know, it would be way more freeing to have this like open-ended magical realm. Actually, for me, having a defined space of this real world setting, and maybe it's because I worked with Nani first, or maybe it's just because there were so many unknowns that having like a setting locked in um, allowed my imagination to go free elsewhere instead of worrying about where the person was going to be walking in the world. Yeah. Um, it just, it it's sometimes those, yeah. Sometimes those constraints can help with creativity, right? It seems contradictory, yeah. but it, but it really does. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny. Like now I teach uh, a lot of like world building workshops, but I'll also teach people how to like create um, a really simple, and I teach this to kids, 
to kids and youth um, how to set up a world building experience that could then be transferred into VR. And one of the things I like actually nice. believe is that um, VR, you could kind of like, you don't need to have expensive technology and um, like gear to start thinking in virtual worlds. Like you can do it with what you have available to you, whether that's mm-hmm. like a piece of paper and a pen or you know, just you're sitting in your bedroom at home at your parents' house, like whatever um, you have, you can start to imagine a virtual world and like what that would look like for you. And so I get uh, the kids to uh, draw their bedrooms. Um, and nice. that I think is a very freeing, even though it's like such a structured space, but you're so <laughs> familiar with it and you know it so <laughs> well, especially as a kid when you're living at home. Like, yeah. you know your bedroom so well and you know what all the little things in there mean. And and so from there, you can kind of like let your fantasy world evolve from the space. Um, That's great. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's a great time for us to plug too. I, you know, I've seen the the beautiful paper prototypes that you made for this and, and sort of speak to that. I, I feel like this is one of the nice lessons I learned at the uh, USC game design program was was definitely that the power of that, right? It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how complicated of a game or a world or anything, you can almost always prototype it with like a like a board game setup, just with <laughs> pieces of paper and yeah. Yeah, and actually like, especially being on the other side of the granting world right now, like um, since I've been um, working for Unity on Unity for yeah. Humanity, which is a grant pro- uh, granting uh, arm of Unity. So we like basically get grants to social impact creators who are making really cool work and yeah yeah, like reading so many applications and uh, becoming really familiar with like how people pitch stuff like it to me personally it's not like how slick your project application is if you have something like a paper prototype that you sketched out and shows like your vision that can be just as profound as and powerful as like a very high concept like slick you know, 3D prototype. Um, it just, it, it's the meaning behind it and the story and the reason and the rationale for making something that's the most powerful. And I, yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. It also kind of shows, uh, I, I like that because as like a meta thing, like it's showing your process, right? So it's kind of showing what more someone can expect from you, <laughs> right? Yeah. If they're giving you a grant, they can expect more of this type of process, right? Totally. It shows that you, it shows that you are someone who, thinks in, in a creative way that you are open-minded to I mean the one of the things about world building that I love is that like in theory you should be able to tell your story of your world with whatever tools you have access to right like mm-hmm. a graphic a graphic novel I mean you could you could do that in theory pretty simply and not simply and I, I this is obviously not considering how complicated making graphic novel is, but like you could, you could do a graphic novel or you could do a film or you could make a video game depending on what you have access to. And so for me, I fell into VR and like suddenly made all these incredible connections because we were traveling and like showing work and I was in these spaces and learning it, like how to do VR and all this stuff. And so I thought, okay, instead of film, like I'm going to try and do this in VR. I'm going to try and tell this story in VR because this is the tool that I have now found myself closest to and like with as much access as I could ever hope to get in this field. So let's just go for it and see what happens. But you might have that same access with like your phone. Like maybe you're like yeah. really, really good at Instagram stories or like really, sure. really like good at, you know, whatever platform you have access to on your phone. Like suddenly you could consider uh, creating your story world in that, in that way. That's cool. Well, to bridge a little bit from this sort of talk about the importance of kind of process and creation and, and, and how to share that, 
I'm curious, um, you know, one of your other projects, uh, Unceded Territories, um, was was speaking a lot uh, to um, sort of indigenous cultures and um, uh, sort of related uh, issues. And I know that you sort of, um, you worked with, uh, what was his name? Um, Lawrence, Lawrence? Paul, yeah, Lawrence Paul. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, an artist here in Vancouver. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that process looked like or or sort of how, because I know that that, like if I imagined myself doing that, I feel like I would have lots of kind of cultural sensitivity as I was trying to take into account and trying to figure out like how I do that in the right way. And like, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, kind of like what your process was there and how you sort of like elicited the the stories to, to help tell mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So uh, for Lawrence and I, our collaboration uh, came about in a pretty unique way. Um, yep. So Lawrence is a really outspoken and well-known activist and artist in Vancouver, British Columbia. We live on ceded territories. Um, and his a lot of his work addresses the fact that we live on these lands that were never given over by Indigenous people to Canadian people. Um mm-hmm they are essentially like stolen, well, they are stolen land. Um, And so with that in mind, um, I, so to go, to take a step back, when I was working on Homestay, I uh, was very lost and confused during some of my creative process and ended up trying to make lists of things I knew I liked. And one of those things (laughs) was art theory. Um, I love learning about creative communities and artists who've been experimenting and, and trying new things. And so during the uh, time that I was pitching Homestay and working on it, um, VR was really like a lot of like Silicon Valley startups and like really a lot of things that I found to be uh, not as creative as some of the stories I'd heard uh, of the early days of VR. Like it seemed like in direct kind of uh, <laughs> directly a, in opposition in some ways to some of the stuff I'd heard of, of like artists experimenting in virtual worlds and trying new things and like hanging out with friends and just getting weird together. Um, and so like sure. I heard um, at a panel at SIGGRAPH. Facebook Jackie, acquiring like, Oculus is, is kind of the opposite of that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's like, it's like a little bit different. And I was like, you know, the early days of VR I'd heard were like really cool and people just like listening to music and getting weird and trying new things. And I was like, I got to, I got to read about this. So I ended up ordering a bunch of texts um, from uh, eBay. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I started to realize like a lot of the stuff that we were saying, like, oh, th- this project was the first project to do this. Like we, there was, I don't know if you remember this, but like, especially with the VR scene, they'd be like, oh, this is the first like project sure. that's done this in VR. And I'd be like, well, actually, that actually happened for the first time in 1992. You're, mm-hmm. you, you can claim to be the first, but... I would say that you're not. Uh, and there was this need to be like fastest and coolest and best and slickest and all these like, uh, whatever. And so- Gotta anyway, have some term to throw up on the marketing material, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so anyway, so these texts started to reveal to me a bigger picture. Uh, I'm sure lots of people who were in the VR scene like were there and like, I know they were there because I've heard them talk about it. And like, they can speak to this in a lot more- uh, you know, personal experience than I can, because I'm only getting it through these secondhand stories and also from theory. But uh, anyways, the book started to reveal to me a bigger picture of experimentation and challenging, you know, um, challenging the scene and, and trying to really ask big questions. And so 
Lawrence had actually written an essay that was in a book that I read all about mm. um, indigenous spirituality and virtual worlds. And for example, he, he actually created a, a VR project called Inherent Rights, Vision Rights. And it's all about huh. um, getting folks into, so specifically non-Indigenous people into this VR experience and understanding and seeing Indigenous spirituality and culture. And so as we know, Indigenous spirituality has been, or they've attempted to eradicate that in Canadian history uh, yep. through a lot of really brutal and horrific ways. And so yep. for Lawrence to create this VR experience that's inviting non-Indigenous people into a longhouse where you can actually engage with spirit creatures um, mm-hmm. and, and hear like personal, it's a personal space. Um, it's very powerful and very generous, you know, like that's like an incredibly generous act. Uh, and, and so Lawrence and I ended up talking about like, first of all, when, when I saw that, I was like, what the hell? Like, I know Lawrence, (laughs) I know Lawrence personally. So we have a connection, just whatever he's, I know him in, in the physical realm, like Mm -hmm. not, not related to VR at all. So, um, when I found out he had made this piece of VR and it was probably like in the back of his studio, it was just a weird coincidence kind of, because I had no idea that he had ever done that work so um it was kind of like for me like a light went off I was like oh my god we need to do something addressing the fact that 20 years have passed since this piece was made and there are the same problems uh even worse um problems in our current world and so could Lawrence and I make a VR project using the tools that I have access to now through unity Mm -hmm. or um you know, just like being a part of the VR scene, I guess, to bring his message to a wider audience that uh, addresses things in a more urgent way. Like not like time has passed and that generosity still is so powerful, but let's do something that's more confrontational. And so Lawrence and I, Lawrence, that was Lawrence's idea. Like let's, let's challenge audiences directly. Like let's, let's um, confront them with what they're not doing. And so um, that's how the project came about. So it was a very like unique, it wasn't like, like a lot of collaborations would probably come out of the, every collaboration is different, but this one felt particularly magical because it happened in such an interesting way where like I read his essay and then I saw his piece. It was just happened to be on exhibition. Like the piece, okay. To give you, to give audiences of this podcast, some context, there's only one, version of this vr experience in existence and for some weird reason it was on exhibition well we made this connection and so i was actually able to see this experience at uh, a museum here in vancouver um, and see it and so it's this is with some kind of specialized hardware or something yeah like so the thing is is that normally i mean these days you kind of like assume that a vr experience you can watch it on whatever platform but in the 90s, they had one version of it and mm-hmm. they had one, you know, computer set up and they had like a custom wooden viewer and a joystick that wow. navigated the space. And it's all like so beautiful, too. Um, it's all contained <laughs> in a plexiglass container. So you can see the casing around the, the hardware. It's just like a very beautiful installation piece. But you can't like 
send that around the world. Like that's only going to be able to be seen by whoever sees it at a gallery in a very specific setting. So that was another part of our collaboration together was like, can we use like Oculus and Unity and like this kind of hardware that is out there now to get this message across to like the world? You know, that was like another question. You bring up an interesting point there of the, uh, I feel like the experience of uh, especially like art uh, in VR is influenced yeah. strongly by the presentation of it outside of VR, right? <laughs> like what did that, what does the installation look like? What is the, you know, what are the people guiding you to do before you put on the headset and all that kind of stuff. So it's cool oh, to see yeah. them thinking about that all the way back in the day. Yeah. I mean like, um, yeah, inherent rights, vision rights, like Lawrence's piece from the nineties. Um, uh-huh. It's you sit down and you have like a wooden viewer and it's very like, it's very considerate in how you you view it. It's very very much meant to be uh, an art experience, and mm-hmm. you really he in his theory that he wrote about the experience, he calls it the white man's mask, and it's hmm. it's really like I recommend anyone who's listening to read his essay. A lot of the things he's bringing up about um, masks and 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 indigenous spirituality in relationship to the mask is so powerful and relevant to how virtual reality (laughs) is consumed. It's really interesting and cool. It's very, very cool. And so, um, but yeah, like in terms of your, your point that you just made about like how we consume VR, I mean, it's a huge consideration to me, like, especially working with Nani where her piece is like really intense journalism pieces. Uh, A lot of that information, like going into that experience is like no joke. You need to have mm. frame it up for someone so they're not traumatized yeah. by what they're about to see. Um, you can't just like just try. I, I would I would say that framing it as journalism is essential in that mm. you go into it with the mindset this is real um, and it, you're experiencing something that it truly occurred. Like that is a very different window into consuming VR content than like say um, unseated territories. Like that it's a it's a different experience completely and your frame isn't while it's a you know they're both vr projects unseated territories is not journalism it is an art experience it has realistic elements and deals with real world issues but Mm -hmm. it's not the same thing at all and so you have to be really careful when you show vr and that's why like when you go into something like the oculus store and just like download something it kind of it's a risky move for art vr um, mm-hmm. it's not like it necessary. Cause I think like in a lot of games and stuff, like you frame it up through the intro to the game. Right. So you can kind of do that. Like unseated territories, we have like an intro space where you kind of move through this, like kind yep. of introductory realm where you understand how to use your hand movements and you understand that you're getting into this like very specific space. And I think a lot of audiences are prepped to know that when you go into a space, you don't necessarily know you're, you're open-minded to how you will consume the content, but some things just are served better in an installation space where there's someone who's there to talk to you afterwards. For example, Homestay, um, the piece that I first made with the National Film Board of Canada is deals very explicitly with suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, it feels of utmost importance to have someone there to talk to people after they finish watching the experience because it's very yeah. intense. And That's interesting. 
Yeah, that's um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's odd, sort of thinking about just pushing that into an app store or whatever, isn't it? Yeah, like I mean, like obviously, I want the project to be experienced by people and like be out sure. in the world, and so I'm in conflict with getting it out there and also like how people consume it. You know, like yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like a hard. So maybe maybe one thing you could do is like, okay, just FYI, you know this is a really intense experience. Please make sure that you're aware of this before you go in trigger warnings, that kind of stuff. Sure. But at the end of the day, like there's nothing like going through a really powerful experience and then taking off the headset. And like, because I've done this so much now talking with someone about their thoughts, about yeah. the experience and like yep. seeing their reaction. I'm like, it's not even so much like, it's not like because I, you know, they're, they're trained therapists there or anything like that. It's literally just human connection and sure. someone witnessing your emotion and like being like, this is okay to feel sad or I understand where you're coming from or I'm so sorry that happened to you or similar thing happened to me. Like so many interesting experiences for me have been through showing work and someone taking off the headset and looking at me and be like the same thing happened to me. Wow. You know, you know what I mean? Like there's nothing yeah. quite like that. And so when you put an apps or an you, you you lose some of that of course you can do like comments and stuff but people are so different in comments than they are in person yeah that's interesting well right before we uh kind of move on to a couple other things i'd love just to if we can share a little bit with the audience um you know hopefully they go check these out but i feel like there is one or two elements of unceded territories it would be fun just to kind of share briefly i think that there was a uh there was an interesting sort of a snake in there, maybe if you can refer to. And I feel like there was also, you had some sort of like tool uh, that we're using to sort of like paint the world, but it had some sort of like secondary effects. Is that right? Yeah. So um, so Lawrence's work uh, has a lot of like specific characters that are that repeat through his work. And so one of the things that we did when we started working together is we decided on uh, what characters we wanted to appear in the story. And one of his um, sculpture pieces is Colonial Snake. And so he's created like a life-size snake out of wood that exists out there in the world. And so we decided that this sculpture piece would be a character in the VR experience. And so mm-hmm. he modeled the snake um, after his actual sculpture. And Colonial Snake... Um, eats you after confronting you with your negative actions in the world. (laughs) And once you're eaten by a colonial snake, you go into his belly, basically. And when you're in the belly of the beast, you have no ability to use your hands anymore. And so what you're actually referring to is the hands. So Hmm. basically, when you go into unceded territories, you don't realize it, but you are this character called the super predator. And so the super predator is a character that re- reoccurs throughout Lawrence's work that represents basically the colonizing super businessman who takes things from the earth and uses them for his own benefit and does not consider anyone else. It's like gas companies or, uh, you know, forestry companies or people who are really like taking advantage of the earth for their personal wealth. And that's the main thing. So a lot of the time they're suited people who have like big masked faces, uh, a lot of like intense teeth and like slithering tongues. They're kind of grotesque in some ways. And so that that character, that super predator character, you, uh, the audience is that character throughout the whole experience. (laughs) 
Um, and you do not know that you're that character. Interesting. Yeah, you never know that you're that character. And so the experience <laughs> is based of taking everyone who goes into the experience and putting them in that role. And so you you're you realize you've hands when you first get into the world and you look at your hands and they're they're these like amazing hands that are completely uh, based on Lawrence's paintings. And so you are able to use your hands to throw these balls of paint that you can like start to throw. And that's the mechanic that we use to create the world around you. And like, like any colonizer, it's a delightful process to discover this world and to create it. And you, you are loving it. It's super fun and whimsical. And you're like, yeah, this is amazing. So you keep doing it and you get really into it and it's super fun. And the music <laughs> is like really, really rad. And so you, you're building this world and you get really, really into it. But what you don't realize is that every couple of balls of paint are actually fire and oil. And so as you're creating this world around you you're actually simultaneously destroying it and so by the time you realize you're ruining the world it's too late oh, and no. you are in a burning oh, no. world and that's when um the snake comes and eats you spirit bearer <laughs> spirit bearer is like wonderful creature who's actually voiced by lawrence um and he actually warns you before you get too far down the pipeline pipeline blah, blah. i'm sorry that's like an inside joke with my project um so uh basically spirit bot spirit bear comes and warns you um that you're you're going down the wrong path and that you you should really not touch what you not participate in this and and before it's too late you should stop but it i mean obviously it's it's too late for you regardless you you can't really change your ways at this point um and so spirit bear is based on another sculpture that lawrence made as well um, and then, yeah, so basically, uh, once you get into this belly of the beast, you have no longer have access to your arms, um, and you're confronted with your actions. So the idea here is that, and a lot of people get really pissed when I was, <laughs> when we would, when we show the project, people get angry. They're like, but I don't want to ruin the world. And you're like, well, that's kind of the point, right? Like if you, if you are pissed, you're not paying attention, right? We live in a world where someone is controlling what's going on and we don't actually have access to it. And a lot of the time we are, well, actually, no, we are all participating in this destruction of the environment, right? Willingly or not, we just are. Um, we're complicit and confronting that feeling of like regret and disappointment and shame and this like, this the anger feelings that come up from the project, that's where we want people to reflect on and think about how we engage with the world that we're in. Like, are yeah. you thinking about these things? I, I yeah, I mean it's fascinating. I just love the sort of powerful the the powerful nature of the metaphors that you're able to engage with when uh when when you sort of have that uh, programmatic control <laughs> over both <laughs> the, the person, the avatar, the tools, all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah. so like for me, the coolest thing about VR is that you can really like toy with your audiences in that way. Like yeah. getting someone used to a mechanic in the world is really cool because then you can take it away. And that challenges mm. people, right? People don't like mm. it when you get used to something and then it's gone. Yeah. Or you you hear something and you can't see it. Or so like thinking about things that you can do in the real world, like even if you're just, you know, a person in a room with a bouncy ball, like um, I, I'm just riffing here but like let's say uh you that I, I mean like literally like in the world um you want to try and figure out the mechanics of your game world you could throw your ball around the room and and and, and use that to kind of like figure out what you want to do in the virtual world and then what what could you take away from this room that you're in like 
can you take away the ball? What does that make your character feel? If, if there's mm. suddenly a million balls in the room, what, how does that feel? Like, how can you toy with the space that you've created in a virtual world using very, very simple, um, yeah, um, pre-visualization, I guess. Totally. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love to, um, maybe we can start to, uh, to shift a little bit um, from, uh, so you've been doing all this great personal work, and then you've also been sort of helping sort of others bring kind of work in these areas uh, into the world. Um, and uh, you've been doing this over at uh, Unity, which is, uh, for those that aren't familiar, Unity is just this amazing kind of uh, game engine um, or this sort of engine to make sort of interactive 2D and 3D content. Um, I have often unironically called it one of the seven technological wonders of the world because <laughs> it's just so powerful to kind of make whatever you, whatever you want to do. Uh, and, and you've been leading uh, the sort of Unity for Humanity program over there. Um, can you tell us kind of a little bit uh, about that program and uh, kind of how you got into that? Yeah, absolutely. So Unity for Humanity, like you said, it, it grants social impact creators to make work and also a big thing is growing our community of social impact creators. So outreach, getting to know people out there who are making really interesting work or those who are curious about social impact work but don't necessarily know how to get into it. Um, anyone who's interested in making a difference in the world, uh, if they identify that way, then they're welcome to submit or engage with Unity for Humanity. Um, so I got into it uh, during the pandemic, actually. I uh, just mm. I saw the job posting and, uh, and applied. Uh, it just seemed like the right fit for me. I, I, believe, yeah. I believe in Unity's um, platform. I, I used it for both unceded territories and homestay. And, um, you know, I'm familiar with not only the platform, but what's possible and have seen it in action to make real difference. And so... I, I first of all, believe in it. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so that drew me to the job. Uh, obviously, it's a global pandemic. And I, as an independent creator making virtual reality experiences, I, I thought it was a good choice uh, for me personally to sure. take a job. Um, <laughs> Yeah. as one does well, that's what it's, we were talking it's kind of funny kind of switching sides on the table right Sitting on yeah the other side. I mean it, like it's cool because as a creator like I, I get to engage with other creators it's my own community um, I get to see what people are making and, and be supportive in that way and also I feel like as someone who's applied many many times for many many grants it's nice to know that on the other side of the table there's a creator there who understands how hard it is and can see where you're at with your process like I feel like I understand where projects are coming from and like what's possible and and can help like mm -hmm. kind of nurture or have those kind of conversations and understand where people are trying to go just because I know from experience and so it just it, it was the right fit and the timing worked out and it's been um really really interesting to be a part of unity and see um yeah like how dedicated so many folks are at the company to making a difference in the world so that's really really inspiring um one I'm of the things i yeah one of the things i've been working on since joining is actually like getting uh employees at unity to support projects who win our grants uh, technical mm. support but not oh, just that's great yeah so not just technical support but also like marketing legal like pr yeah. um so 
people are just really, really interested in supporting our creator community. So identifying folks who work in the company as like a huge company, finding people who are excited to support yeah. these projects and get them like um, attached to projects that come through our pipeline. Yeah. It's that fun. makes me happy to hear because uh, as much as I love Unity, the <laughs> having done a company based on it in the past, getting uh, a contact inside who is a technical contact is is invaluable. So, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like just, I mean, as a creator who like has made projects without applying, like I never won a Unity grant or applied for a Unity grant. I don't, it only started mm-hmm. this past year. So it didn't exist really when I was funding my projects. Um, sure. But knowing that there's a grant out there that, you not only get financial support, but you get um, technical support is like a huge deal. Even even just yeah. emotionally knowing that that's out there, like is very yep. important to know. And I think right now people don't, like it's a new grant program. So I, I don't know how many creators actually know it exists, but I'm trying to get spread the word that people should apply for this. Because even if you don't win in your first attempt at applying, um, it's really worthwhile to apply because it gets our internal unity eyeballs on your work and your name and your project and what you're trying to do. And um, once you're in that community and pipeline, like you are in our database, right? Like we can think about your project for opportunities as they arise. And if you reapply, we're more familiar with your work and see, can see progress. And it's just like worthwhile to reapply and also to apply period. Um, so I, that's one of my like words of wisdom to anyone who's got a social impact project is to apply. Um, that's great. Yeah. And um, well, I'd love to. Yeah, please. Oh, no, 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 no. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I, you know, I feel like one of the things that would be um, both interesting for us to talk about, you know, on reroute, we're always trying to like paint, you know, what are these sort of like uh, promising ways we can, you know, help mm-hmm. uh, help the future, help reach brighter futures, uh, and it just feels like such a rich area for that. I, I'm wondering if we can start kind of like mapping out uh, the different ways that people can use, um, you know, Unity or other game engines, uh, you know, for impact, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it seems like there's a few that. That are maybe um, you know they're, they're they're very valuable, but I but I see a lot of people kind of gravitate towards. I see you know things like educational content, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of making like teaching sort of things through games. I think it's very powerful. Uh, I also see people doing things where it, it feels like there's there's a very important push towards kind of more like representation in games, right? Sort of like mm-hmm. uh, both both sort of with different cultures and sort of different like. Um, creators of different backgrounds and different characters with different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's any interesting things there, I'm curious to hear it. Uh, but I'm also curious to kind of like figure out like what are the sort of like maybe places that we haven't seen uh, or would love to see kind of more uh, exploratory impact through games and game technology. Interesting questions. So, yeah. so first of all, I recommend that in general, people start with their own experience. Um, everyone mm. I know and everyone out there has a different story and has experienced different things. So personally, the personal is political and the personal is powerful. So if you start with where you're at, that'll really direct you to making the most impact. Um, I believe that if you look at what your talent is, what your skill set is, if that's game design, mm-hmm. then great. If it's illustration, then great. If it's, um, talking to others and making connection. Wow. That's amazing too. Like what, what is the thing that like you feel the most natural, naturally drawn to, and then look Mm -hmm. at what the world's biggest need is. So if it's, um, for example, like we dealt with the loss 
in our family that was really, really hor yeah. horrible. Um, and for me, it felt like not only, it felt necessary to tell that story. Like it felt like I had mm -hmm. to talk about it because I needed to talk to other people about it for my own healing. But also like when you talk about things, they become like a share that you can talk to other people and you make connection and suddenly you're less alone. And so for me with homestay, like that was a personal story. It was something that was accessible to me to tell. And it had a natural social impact element because talking about mental health is wildly important. Um, and ultimately it was able to make like um, some institutional change in that like mental health uh yeah expertise is now offered to international students in canada like because of seeing That's the great, vr yeah. experience so um like what what i'm trying to say is if the audience is listening and they are thinking and this about this is also just for folks reference this is homestay if they want to go look at it yeah. yeah so homestay for example that was like it kind of all like happened naturally but it was a personal experience that happened and it has a real story but that story also um you know, has a social impact purpose. Yeah. And so identifying where your personal story intersects with what the world needs is like a really good sweet spot to figure out where you can make the biggest difference. And so let those personal narratives, especially if it's your first time making a project um, or your first, whatever you're trying to make, like film, VR, game, following your personal story can often lead you to really interesting places. That's a piece of advice, but of course we all work on projects that are not personal. And so one thing. Yeah. It's fun. I will say just before you go, cause I think it's funny that like, cause I, I was like, okay, well that that's good, but it doesn't really apply to the projects I've worked on. And then I was yeah. thinking about it more and I was like, no, 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 it is like, you know, there's, there's, it, it might not be the first way I would think about it, mm -hmm. but like, so like I built this um, projection mapping tool in unity actually. Uh, but, you know, I don't think I was originally thinking of it as a personal thing, but it was because I wanted a tool to use myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. right? I wanted to be able to go out and project things on walls and stuff. So yeah. I, I do feel like there is a thread there that you can find on, on, on most sort of projects. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like when you make something, it becomes personal, right? So mm. even if you're, you feel removed, like say you're working on someone else's vision of a project, like where are the ways that you can think about things like sustainability? or um, mental health in the way that you practice your work um, and, and thinking about those things, even in, as a person working on a larger team, like whether that's um, bringing up things in conversation that someone else might not have thought about. Like I think about it, there's so many ways to approach social impact, but one thing is like just making sure that we all share our experiences with each other, especially in collaborations. Like maybe the game designer or the director of a project isn't thinking about something that you see um, and you bring it up in a conversation suddenly shifts how powerful the project is. Like that's a little thing, but it can make a huge difference. Like what if someone forgot uh, a complete point of view or perspective that's not reflected in the work that, that you're making or it doesn't consider how someone would feel about a project. If you, if you share that with, someone like that's a little thing that you can do on a project that could shift the outcome and how it lives in the world. And so there, that's one way of thinking about it. But 
So, for example, at Unity, uh, at Unity, they have um, an education department and lots of instructional mm-hmm. videos out there to learn Unity, which I, for me, is like yeah. a huge reason why I was drawn to working at Unity is that they put their money where their mouth is like that. Like, okay, <laughs> you want to make this accessible to people? Well, then we're going to have available online for you to learn. Like, that's super mm-hmm. freaking cool. Um, and so I actually, our Unity for Humanity team this summer has been working with uh, the education team to see like, where can we give examples? Like when people are learning Unity, can we give them social impact examples? Like what are little things that we could do? Like, oh, maybe in a, making a little demo game, you actually make a sustainability demo game. Um, mm-hmm. What are little things we can do that kind of start to get people to think in uh, in this kind of way? Can we infuse? Yeah. Can we infuse like a global experience or hu- a vision of humanity into what is a very, um, you know, basic learning the mechanics of Unity learning lesson? Can we start to make it more impactful in that way? And like the fact that that's like something we're doing to me speaks to how we can shift the culture of games, right? Like, yeah. I really love that idea of, of putting out a co- like just a, a handful of kind of in-house examples of different routes uh, towards impact with the tool. Cause it feels like just a couple of those things, like, you know, it seems very analogous to the other sorts of like kind of almost tech demo type things that, that Unity does, but, <laughs> but sort of impact demos instead. Right. I, I like that idea. Yeah. So like, um, bringing a lot of the time in the lessons, they'll have like a creator talking about something they've made or whatever. So including like social impact creators who've Mm -hmm. taken their lessons, then make, you know, um, a really powerful piece and sharing their experience. I think exposure to just like what's possible. If you don't know that you can make a game about recycling, then you won't ever think like that. But if you see someone who's done Mm -hmm. something like that, you're like, Oh wow, that's super cool. Well, why don't I solve for, um, you know, uh, a certain in- issue that I see in my life, like, okay, I hadn't even considered that, but wow, that's a great idea. Like you, unless you know that something exists and that you can do something about it with the tools that you have in front of you, like you might not think like that. So that's why like getting the language of social impact is really, really cool and, and important. Yeah. Well, and I love, so you mentioned kind of the like recycling. I feel like that's like a really interesting category, right? Cause that's kind of like the, um, uh, if you do that right, what you're what you're going to be doing is kind of like um, helping to transmit a mental model of how a system works in the world mm-hmm. uh, to somebody else, yeah. right? And it feels like games are games are kind of uniquely good at that uh, because and and you can you can be disingenuous with this, but but if you're genuine with it and if it's all on board, like there the if you present something in particular ways, you can see it and you're like, well, there's no other way this could work. Like once you understand the game mechanics, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I found that to be powerful when I'm trying to think if there's any good examples that I can pull for this. You know, I feel like, well, I don't know. Like, it's weird to think of it as a game for good, but I feel, feel like uh, maybe an example of this is that um, uh, there was that pandemic video game. Uh, it's not pandemic. It's uh, I forget what it's called, uh, but it's about infecting. all. You're playing as the virus, right? And you're trying to infect the world. Uh, but I feel like that communicates sort of like a model of um, uh, Plague Inc. Thanks, uh, producer Nick. It's called Plague Inc. Uh, but that that conveys a model of viral spread in a way that I feel like it'd be difficult to do otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, like it's an inter- if you think about something like that where your spread your your goal is to spread a virus, like that it might be super fun and a great 
game and like you get really engaged and into the world, which is amazing world building, but also you are learning something from that, even though it is right. um, a game, right? Like ultimately you are learning that things do spread. Like, um, And so yeah. I think the intersection between the mechanics of the game and like how you get people into the world, like that's where you can have, when you start to think about what gets you into that world, what get, gets audiences and players engaged in this in this game, and then taking a step back and thinking like, oh, okay, what's the actual messaging? Where what do I want to do with this um, powerful gameplay? Um, you can start to think about how you can make the biggest difference. Um, but yeah, like yeah. that's a like that's right. a really. I mean, there's been like a lot of uh, exploration of COVID in games, and and even things mm. like putting like yeah like masking up or getting um it's not just games to like solutions using um unity for mapping out where you can get um purchase masks like that kind of stuff like just um nice yeah not just if we're going to go down a covid conversation like just thinking about how you can use unity in so many different ways to share information or yeah games solutions vr ar um all sorts of things so well i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna toss out just a couple more because i just feel like there's so many here i think the um uh the i thought one of the ones you know i I think there's this whole category of like so like for better or for worse a lot of games have found like different like addictive things or different like uh they they can spur certain user behaviors Mm -hmm. right and sometimes it's used for good sometimes it's used for bad Mm -hmm. Uh, or sometimes it's used for entertainment and sometimes it's used for bad (laughs) but i think it's interesting to start casting the questions on like how can we start using some of these things for good right like you know uh we're competing in the attention economy so how do we use you know a lot of these game loops for good how do we use the sort of like time limitations for good how do we use like microtransactions for good Mm -hmm. right like all these these sort of tools that they're sort of double-edged swords, but they were developed originally for maybe like not so good, but is there ways that we can use it for good, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the main thing there is like the for good thing. Like I think you have to incur, like people have to be empowered to think like that. Like if you're just, mm. and, and that, that either comes to the education or introduction to like how people learn the platforms or like how they're thinking through games or their exposure to other games, but if you don't think that that's a possibility to you, like you won't make that kind of stuff. So sure. um, I think encouraging people to like tell a story that's personal and meaningful to them or to see what to, to tell stories that they haven't seen told before um, or to think about like, yeah, like just the possibility of what's possible or sorry, that's obviously redundant, but like to think about what's possible in their game. Um, and and to go for it right like otherwise you i think there's a tendency to just kind of like do what you think you should do um or what's been done before and not like try new things and so encouraging people to take that kind of risk can be powerful right so yeah i love it well that's awesome and then uh yeah, I just uh, I think the last the last one on that that I just I, I found such like a funny creative prompt was just like uh, and I and I know you guys kind of have like categories right now uh, on, on on what type of projects, but just like what does it look like to have a a project for good that is simply a library in the Unity Asset Store, right? Like I I don't know what the answer to that is yet, but it's it's a, it's a very interesting question to be like what is a asset <laughs> that is for positive impact, you know, that other people can use in their projects. 
Well, that's actually a really interesting question. There are some people who've been working on uh, just building out um, libraries of characters and assets that are more representative of uh, a wider, oh, interesting. Thing, wider diversity of folks. Like um, if, if only a certain type of people are making what's in the asset store, it's going to be a very specific perspective of things, right? So making sure that a diversity of creators are creating those assets, then you're going to get a wider diversity of things there that exist. Like you might not look, know to look to some for something in the asset store if it's not your personal experience, right? So someone else, sure. like whether that's a specific product or a specific, you know, um, character or whatever, like you're not going to look for it unless you have had that experience. So sorry, what I'm just saying is like thinking through to make sure that there's more creators who are making things for the asset store is actually in fact a solution to that question. Yeah, that's great. That's a great example. Um, and just, just for uh, folks that might not be familiar. So one of the, one of the great things about unity is that, um, uh, you know, when you're building games, you need all these different assets, right? You need the the objects in the world, you need the uh, player models, you need the, you know, vehicles, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also need like libraries, like software libraries. And so Unity has this asset store that basically anybody can upload content that other people can pull into their game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's um, one of the things that makes it very easy to develop on. Um Well, this is awesome. Uh, is there, you know, I, I'm curious if maybe there's just like, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to try to make you play favorites or anything here, but, but I'm curious if there's maybe like, uh, like one or two other examples of just kind of like things that you've seen, uh, uh, through the unity humanity program that might be interesting to our listeners. Yeah. So, um, we've awarded some projects this year that are pretty incredible. Um, they're all available at to, if you want to like check them out, um, www.unity.com slash humanity, you can see uh, a lot of our previous recipients and like get um, images and, and trailers and all that sort of stuff. But some of the projects that stick out to me are um, Samudra, which is a project by LLM out of Jakarta. And it's all about mm-hmm. um, in, uh, ocean health and um, environmental nice. Experience is a game where you can kind of like go through an underwater adventure game and it deals with um, re- removing plastic from the ocean. And um, another project that I'm fairly obsessed with is called Dots Home. And that's uh, a project through the Rise Home project stories. And it's all about um, housing and making sure that folks are aware of how to navigate housing systems. And it's through the eyes of a young Black woman growing up. And it's a house that... Her- uh, has gone through different generations of her family. And so how the house has stayed in her family and how it's moved through um, all these systems of um, housing policies. Uh, and it teaches it in a really, really interesting, fun way. So things like that are super um, stick out to me as uh, great projects to check out. Um, games. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Games that like um, speak to personal I mean, L, when he created Samudra, like he really wanted to work with different activist communities in Jakarta. So it's based on his Mm -hmm. personal interest. And same with uh, Dot's Home. It's the creator's personal stories uh, made into an accessible game world. So I I love that it's um, dealing with these issues that you might not think of initially for games, but have, uh, have impact. So, yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Well, we'll make sure to have links to all these things in the show notes. So if you want to check out any of these uh, 
uh, games or projects. We'll make sure to have all those there. Yeah. Um, so anything uh, before we sort of move on, any other sort of like last things on Unity or the program? Uh, uh, do you guys have, uh, I don't know if you can talk about any, are you guys uh, going to be accepting more applicants and all that kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, so Unity for Humanity will have a grant opening up in September and that will be an open call for any social impact topics. So we will do numerous calls a year, uh, but some of those are thematic calls. For example, this past year, we did one on mental health and we did one on environment and sustainability. And so if you have projects that fall into those categories, you would obviously apply to them. But to make sure that we are uh, as accessible to as many people and projects as possible, we do do, uh, do, do. no, we open up this grant um, in September that's open to any social impact themes. So uh, specifically, we use the sustainable development goals, the United Nations sustainability development goals. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So th there's um, a lot of themes in there, for example, education or gender equality or um, yeah, there's just tons of themes on there that most projects that are social impact hit at least one of those notes. So um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, just making sure to keep an eye on the website for more information. And honestly, like if you're listening and you are working on something, please apply. It is a really cool program and it offers a lot of support for your project. Very, very cool. Um, well, hope people uh, apply to that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, maybe we can, maybe we can feature some on the podcast later down the road once they uh, come to fruition. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is also like creating community because mm. you really need a community to not only create the project, like the production of, you know, your technical needs and, and getting the thing actually paid for and made, but also like outreach to festivals and getting things um, out in the world. It takes many hands to make a successful game or VR piece or AR piece. And so I think community is actually completely essential to the success of a game. And so hopefully this can help kind of create some of that for folks. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I know that was, uh, that was one of the things that surprised me so much with the, uh, alt space stuff was, uh, you know, the, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with other people are familiar, but this is a social VR platform we created. And, um, you know, in the beginning, I was thinking about very much like one-on-one -on -one conversations or events or different things, but the community aspect really surfaced as one of the most important aspects of it. I am familiar. Got me at least by surprise, but I, I've learned to look for that now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, of course, like it also just makes it so much more fun to be a part of something um, when there's yeah, it does people who are as excited and pumped as on something as you are. <laughs> you know, yeah, it makes it all the more exciting. Well, that's awesome. Um, well, you know, I, I'd love to maybe transition a little bit towards um, this. I know you've got this uh, kind of feminist futures project where you sort of help other people do uh, world building. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So feminist futures is uh, a world building workshop run by myself and Caitlin Conlin. And Caitlin's a graphic designer and uses world building in her uh, approach to design and um, I use world building, obviously, for film and for VR. And so we um, run this workshop together. And essentially, what we get folks to do is to uh, learn about how to world build and then use it to create a, a fictional utopian feminist future. Um, we've taught it at um, numerous locations and organizations. And sometimes we tailor it. So, for example, with Outfest, which is the L.A. Queer Film Festival, 
we designed like a queer feminist future and we've worked with different organizations to kind of t- tailor it and um, yeah, like get people involved in different ways into this process. But it's, it's pretty amazing because it is actually very lo-fi. We use craft materials like Play-Doh and pipe cleaners and mm-hmm. it's really, really fun and hands-on, but you end up with these like really profound objects from this inclusive future that people create. So what I love about it is that it's super accessible and fun and gets people out of like a fear-based, it's not like, it's, it's so expansive and it's about like creating this in, inhibited imaginative world um where you don't challenge your you basically push your ideas to be as free and limitless as possible and like getting to that magical space feels really really profound and we don't often get time as creatives to get that kind of silly and fun and free and so creating this world building workshop has been really really fun to teach and and get especially creatives like we can be really hard on ourselves you know like this, this, this idea sucks <laughs> yeah. and like getting people to be like no like that actually <laughs> you're actually onto something just push it a little further and so caitlin and i have created golden rules that kind of get people into the headspace of like not shutting down their ideas too quickly and like letting them go further mm-hmm. and push them up push them to lead you to something really profound and interesting and so that's right i remember saying that you have like the four quadrants or the four different roles right yeah there's there's four rules yeah. and we and we and we kind of try to get people to like think um think uh in the way that like it's very inspired by improv where you say yes to your ideas yes and like mm-hmm. push them forward so that they don't stop your ideas where they are because like a lot of times what we think is like a stupid idea actually leads us to something really really interesting it was based in like our personal like our first instinct you know so following that and and obviously with feminist futures um a lot of the time we'll kind of tailor it around a specific solution so for example one time we taught it um to a, a group of um uh, like business professionals and we wanted to see what they would design around contracts so what would a feminist future world of a contract look like like contracts contracts are so much they're so very much based in a very specific kind of language physical kind of printout or a digital sign like what would a really like open accessible um non-secretive contract look like like something that's um that's great accessible to all yeah and so challenging some of these things that we we have in our current world and just seeing what yeah. are other options that's such a great example because it is so frustrating how contracts are just like intentionally obfuscated <laughs> i know and like so like for example one person came up with like a crown contract where you wear it proudly and you you actually <laughs> want to show people how like open and cool your contract is and this like because ultimately it's an agreement between numerous people right and so yeah. it, it actually can be something that you're very proud of and it's not necessarily to um to hide away in a drawer, to file away something. It's like something you could be proud of and talk to people about, you know, like what would that look That's like? great. Yeah. So well, and I love it. Cause you know, it's like, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, it might not literally be a crown when it's there, but you kind of have to go ridiculous sometimes <laughs> yes. to find the thing that is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like that, this, this stupid idea is actually something that's so like profound and fun and gets you really thinking and, and realizing how like limiting a lot of our current life is I mean, it's not like, yeah. it's more to just get your, your brain thinking uh, about this freedom that we don't always necessarily feel that we, or notice that we don't have. 
Um, so yeah, like, yeah, basically expanding your imagination. Yeah, because I've seen this thread through through a lot of the the work that it seems like you're doing there, which I think is really important. Which is like, how do you kind of uh, either break down or sort of create a space that is able to um, be like unconstrained by existing mm-hmm. um, like f- frameworks or mental models or whatever? You talk about sort of like decolonization stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think with feminism, you're also sort of <laughs> you know looking at uh, you know rejecting sort of like patriarchal mm-hmm. assumptions and stuff like that. Um, is there like I can see maybe like the silliness helping with that? Is there other sorts of like things that you found that that seem useful to kind of help people break out of those mental models? I mean, it is a hard thing to do, right? Like to challenge mm-hmm. the way we've been raised in very specific cultures and like see things the way that we've been told to see things. And so, until you see something for what it is, it's hard to un- like it's hard to see it until you see it. I know that sounds so stupid, but like not until you notice mm-hmm. something or awaken that that awareness you can't see the 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 limitations of the world that you're in and so one of the quote i i quote both caitlin and i like quote uh reference this quote a lot because it's kind of driven how we teach feminist features but it's a quote from a book called octavius brood um and this is in the Mm. foreword to octavius brood and it's written by walida imarisha and it's the decolonization of the imagination is the most subversive form there is for it's where all forms of decolonization are born. Once the imagination is unshackled, liberation is limitless. And so like unshackling your imagination and like birthing this like limitless imagination, like that's the goal. I mean, I can't do that every day. Like it's hard work. I, you know, like, um i but we can try we can try and create a workshop where people are welcome to think like that i mean most people don't have the it's like a full-time job to challenge everything that we've been taught right it takes so much work and constant work it's not just like one time you think about it and you're free like being free is is takes a lot of self-control and awareness to get there right like i mean yeah. Well, it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about this before, but as we're talking about this, I feel like a place where that happens pretty well. And maybe there's even more intentional ways they could do it, but it feels like Burning Man is, is a very good place that helps you uh, reject a lot of those assumptions, at least while you're there, you know. I haven't. I haven't. Money doesn't matter. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think it, I think for a lot of folks, it's like one of the only place where, where imagination is welcome and you get to go imagination first, right? Like the understanding, the mutual, I haven't been so... Uh, this is a lot of my references come from like Malcolm in the middle. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh yeah. Did they talk about it there? <laughs> I mean, they go on a family trip to Burning Man. So anyways, oh, my um, God. yeah. That's hilarious uh, episode. Anyways. Um, but uh, like my understanding is that they, they challenge a lot of things like capitalism, but of course then there are also things like really high ticket costs, like barrier to entry. Sure. Um, so in some ways, like some of that stuff is, 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 at the forefront of people's mind. Like I think a lot of people aren't allowed to be silly or dress in costumes or funny makeup or like hats or whatever. Um, and so it's a place where people can be free and be an, a version of themselves. They can't be in their reality, but imagine we could be that person every day and be free. Yes, I mean, absolutely. like that's ultimately the goal. Of course we, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's work to do that. And so with feminist features, it's like, can we get people to at least think about like creative, um, get to a creative free space for a short workshop. It, it's a, it's a, That's it's great. at least attempting to create the shell of a space for freedom, creative freedom. Yeah. Uh, 
And can we use like a, a, the golden rules or this methodology to get people there faster? And like, if you can do it in this workshop, then you could probably try and do it in other parts of your life. If you follow like a similar safe or create a similar like safe place for imagination to be experienced. Kind of like the understanding of people who agree to go to this Burning Man experience, right? Like you well, this is, culturally yeah. agree that we're not going to judge each other when we get there. We agree we're not going to have money. We sure. agree that yep. we're going to bring our fun, full selves to this place and share this experience, right? Like it, it's different. They're very different experiences, but like there's a mutual understanding in both. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely hoping that uh, we can we can combine the two of these things for even more breaking free of the uh, of the frameworks, and we can we can get you out of Burning Man sometime to run a uh, world building workshop out there. I mean, that would be very cool. <laughs> I, I hope to see it on the program. <laughs> <laughs> One day, uh, okay. Awesome. Yep. Yep. Sometimes. Sounds soon. fun. Uh, well, let's see. Any other sort of like. Yeah, interesting things are around this kind of like world building or uh, like shedding assumptions before we move on. I'd love to talk a little bit at the end here about kind of like uh, community and, and broadening friendships and stuff like that. But anything else in this world building? I don't know. I think if, if people are interested in it, um, they can, they can um, get in touch. Or I think the most important thing is um, just realizing it doesn't have to be this like hard thing. It's, it's accessible to you no matter where you are and your personal goals. Like you can use this methodology to kind of figure out your, your world and your story. That's great. And if people want to get in touch, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, my contact information is on my website, which is paisleysmith.com. That's probably the easiest. Or also um, I'm at Paisley Smith Creative on Instagram. Those are the ones, those are the platforms I use the most, but I'm also on other things. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll drop some links to those. And uh, speaking of your website, I thought it was kind of funny. You know, one of the things that we uh, connected on initially was uh uh, uh, Paisley makes a bunch of amazing GIF images. So yeah, <laughs> if you, yeah, she's got a great collection of, uh, everything from, uh, an AOC to sort of like some things about Indian food, <laughs> to just about every sort of creative GIF image you can see on her website. Well, so I think like, first of all, like I love stickers, like I'm a sticker person, yeah. like my laptop's covered in stickers, my water bottle is covered in stickers. Like I, there's never enough surfaces for the amount of stickers I want to put on stuff. So for me, I just think of like GIFs as like the stickers of the internet and like Giphy, for example, is like a giant sticker book. And I'm like, well, hell I can make my own stickers absolutely I'm gonna do that so it's been really fun also like I love um putting stickers on social media and like in emails and I'm sorry I love putting gifts in, the, in all those places so having some that I made myself yeah. makes me feel super cool <laughs> yeah well it's great the thing that makes me laugh too about it is that it's like um it's uh it's using something that is in many ways, like, I don't know if you've ever worked with GIF images, but like, it's, it's using something that in many ways is like very technically complicated, right? Like, but, it, but, it, but the appearance of it is very low tech, right? Like yeah. when you use it in your presentations and stuff like that, like it looks like, you know, uh, paper cutouts or paper prototyping or whatever, but it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty involved to get it to work, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, yeah. so I started, um, well, first of all, I would say that personally, the way I do it is like, I mean, there's technical steps to it, but I, I use like pretty like accessible tools, like, um, 
giftmaker.com. Like, like I don't use like cool stuff like Photoshop to make my gifts. Like I like, I use, I mean, I do use like procreate to like draw the illustrations and then export them. But ultimately it's like a pretty accessible tool that I feel like is, can be pretty subversive. Like the way that you use gifts and the way that, where you put them and what they say, like it speaks to so much that can't be said in, in a lot of spaces. Um, yeah. And I, I love that. I mean, like, like a sticker, like a bump, like a reverend bumper sticker. Like, I love that. You could bring that yes. into any sort of like professional setting with the, the gift. <laughs> yeah. I kind of like that. Uh, the animated bumper sticker. That's, that's a reasonable. Yeah. Uh, it's like the bumper stickers you can on make the internet. Very powerful kind of political content and stuff with them. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, even on, even like, uh, I don't know, there used to be like a, there's been a lot of like photo attempts at social media organizations that have taken off that are gif based like photos they a lot of them haven't really like worked but even like taking something like a photo of yourself and then like a photo of you wearing a vr headset and then photo of yourself taking off the vr headset like that's you can use like a gif to like show your career focus and putting in yeah, like I, and people get a little glimpse into like what you're actually like interested in or doing you know, like I mean like it's like a simple video right or I mean obviously it's photos but you can kind of speak to more I like that they kind of like stop motion yeah. kind of stuff. yeah exactly yeah. stop motion yeah. exactly Cool. Well, you know, just as we're kind of wrapping up here, I, I feel like there was some, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of both being uh, kind of having some extroversion about us. And it feels like you have some, uh, I'd love to hear you uh, kind of share some of your thoughts on kind of like friendship or reaching out to people or whatever. Yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 am, I definitely identify as an extrovert. Um, I wasn't always an extrovert. I used to be a pretty shy kid and had oh. a lot of like anxiety growing up and was really like socially anxious taken a lot of like giving up on I don't know if it's giving up on social anxiety or something but like now I feel like um I just get so much joy out of talking to other people and getting to know their stories um and I think like friendship to me is like curiosity and someone else's experience uh and and mutual understanding through through that curiosity like um friendship to me is like you get to know someone else and their experiences and their experiences can enrich your own life. And so uh, one thing that I, I, I try to do is just like, yeah, friendship to me is like driven by curiosity and, and like, I like that. and like, honestly, I'm kind of a snoop too. So like a little bit of nosiness is like, <laughs> <laughs> when I got to USC, actually one of the things that they told us was like, you, you're allowed to be a snoop and as nosy as you want and like never apologize for like staring at people because you are a filmmaker and it is your job to like understand and, and observe and use that in your stories. And so I like to use that as an excuse, <laughs> I guess. Permission, I should say. Yeah, permission. Yeah, nice. Well, that's awesome. And I love the, um, uh, one of the things you shared with me was, uh, I thought was valuable, which was just this kind of like, we kind of find ourselves with these kind of like, uh, like static friends groups Mm -hmm. sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's nice to, I think you were like, you know, find a way, you know, see if you can kind of like, uh, like how can you invite people more into the groups that you already have? Right. Yeah. Um, and I really liked that prompt. So I I definitely try to operate from like a more the merrier, um, vibe in my life. Like, um, I love Mm -hmm. 
bringing along friends to, you know, an event or something or introducing different parts of my life to each other. That's something that gives me a lot of joy. I realize that not everyone like functions that way and it can be really stressful for people to have to do that kind of stuff for like, that can be really stressful for some people. Um, and so with that in mind, um, one of the things I like try to, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't really actually put this into practice too much. Like I don't like tell people to do this like that. I feel like that would be like a kind of obnoxious, but one thing I like to think about is if you, if you look around a room and your friend group looks just like you, then maybe it's mm. an opportunity to bring in other folks into your community because through friendship, we have a powerful opportunity to make uh, global change and have more understanding for each other and uh, through our friends is a really great opportunity to learn about the world and uh, I just noticed in my life that a lot of people seem to hang out with people who are just like them and so can we challenge that and just try a little harder to befriend others um, beyond just what's the easiest you're, you're, you know what I mean like and you were saying that you live in um a place with lots of community and different folks and <laughs> I and I and I love that like I think that's so cool I mean that like I, I'm sure I'm sure it, it comes with challenges and his work but I think I think people expect friendship to be easy and friendship like any relationship <laughs> is not easy like a relationship yeah it's gonna say it's a good kind it, of work yeah I mean yeah. it comes with so many amazing things but it does take work to go into a relationship with someone like it's a you have to if you like a good friendship can withstand a lot of challenges but uh it takes communication right and you can't just it's not going to be just like (sighs) easy friendship is not easy i think that's like misunderstanding (laughs) yeah and some of the best friendships I've had is people that I've, uh, you know, kind of like worked through things with, or sometimes, you know, I've had conflicts with people. And then once we've resolved it, we have a better friendship than before. I agree. So I think embracing that challenge yes, is great. But also being aware when something is not okay, is also okay. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. like having <laughs> self, yes, self-respect and being aware of um, abuse and those kinds of things. Like yes. that can you just have to be aware of that. Like that can happen as a risk when you get into any relationship with anyone. Right. And especially when you have um, a diversity of people in your life, like um, you can't, it comes with a diversity of experiences. And so just being self-aware and trying to learn and, and make sure that you feel comfortable. Absolutely. But it's possible, I think to get there um, and have like, it is. Yeah. And I think, you know, on that, just it's like, I think one of the things that was important for me to learn is there's no one other than you who can make that call when somebody's not good for you in your life. You yeah, know, I mean, <laughs> doesn't matter what anybody else says, doesn't matter what society says. Like only you can kind of look out for your own well-being. There. Yeah, and it's I, I think like especially with the the culture that we grow up in, where like um, I think there's a lot of things that tell us that we should be able to make like things work, and if they aren't working, there you should be trying harder in certain situations. So. I think accepting that sometimes that's not true is also okay. But um, yeah, like you said, like it's up yeah. to you to know where what feels good to you and what doesn't and staying true to that is important. I'm learning this right now. So <laughs> I'm not like an expert yeah. or anything. It's just what, what I'm like aware <laughs> of right now in my own journey. So sure. Well, I just love in the spirit of kind of, um, uh, 
inviting in more friends. I'd love to just kind of wrap up with this invitation to, uh, I look forward to, to us inviting in some more friends to join us on this journey of uh, yeah. trying to create some, some, some games for good and some uh, interactive experiences for good and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And it's uh, and like, not to cut you off, but um, it takes, it takes a, a bunch of people to get something off the ground. And so why not do some friends, absolutely. you know? So yes, hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today, Paisley, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Thank you so much. You too. And I appreciate um, you having me here. And and this conversation was really, really cool. So thank you so much. 100%. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.